the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. The Supreme Court hears arguments in what could become the most significant First Amendment case in a generation. What is the speech that is required of your client that would violate the First Amendment? We'll hear from the attorney who argued the case, Kristen Wagoner of ADF. It's wrong that people are facing fines, re-education, and jail time because they won't speak a message that they believe isn't true. We'll look at the significance of another key decision from the Supreme Court earlier this year, West Virginia versus the EPA. This has the opportunity to be a game changer. And Andy McCarthy on Elon Musk's release of the Twitter files. If the government pressures private actors to do things that the government itself would not be allowed to do, then that's a big legal problem. With analysis from Brandon Tatum. When the government is suppressing your speech, that's illegal. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Great to be with you. Catch my program each weekday morning live, 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern Time and on demand 24-7. Learn more at HughHewitt.com. Find it all at The Universe. Follow me on Twitter, at Hugh Hewitt. Follow this program as well at Town Hall Review. We'll start in Washington, D.C. in the Supreme Court, where, on Monday of this week, the nation's highest court heard arguments on the case 303 Creative versus Alanis. The case is really a follow-up to the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision in 2018, where the court, by a 7-2 margin, ruled in favor of cake baker Jack Phillips. But the court in that case did not address the full scope of the First Amendment concerns. Those will be handled in the 303 Creative case argued before the court this week. Kristen Wagoner, CEO of Alliance Defending Freedom, argued on behalf of the petitioners on Monday. Here's a bit of that argument as she was pressed by Justice Kagan. So Mike and Mary go into your client. We love your graphics. We saw them someplace else. We love how this looks. Um, Here's what we want. We want a standard site, our names, our, the picture, the hotels, the registry, you know, just, just that. And uh, you say, okay, don't you? As, yes, assuming all the details line up with the message that she's willing to create. Yeah, I mean, then they say, we don't want your scripture. But they, that's all right with you. They don't have to have scripture. No, they don't. Yeah, have to. they can just have a standard site, right? Okay. So now it's not Mike and Mary. Now it's Mike and Mark, and they want the identical site. We saw Mike and Mary's site. We loved it. We're getting married, you know, you know, all they want to change is the date maybe or, you know, their names, whatever. We loved it. And, and they don't get it. And the question, and, and you say no, right? You, you, you wouldn't be up there if you weren't going to say no, right? They can't get that site. Yes, because the same words can even convey different meanings. Yeah. So then, I mean, the difference is one couple is opposite sex, one couple is same sex. How is this, you know, what, what are the different meanings? What is the speech that your client is expected, is, is required to provide in uh, the way I expressed it to you? 
The purpose of the websites is to celebrate an upcoming wedding. It's to announce a wedding. And it to, is to and announce to, a wedding. I mean, let's, this is a standard site. You know, there's not a whole lot of, gosh, isn't this great? It's just like, here's the registry, you know? It's announcing the wedding. It's announcing where to get the hotel reservations and so forth, right? So what speech is being... I mean, that's, that's, what, that's what websites do, just like it's what invitations do, right? So, you know, next we'll have the stationer up there saying, you know, we print the, sta- the, the stationery, right? I mean, that would be the same. It is announcing the wedding. What's the speech that's been required of your client that we... I mean, I'm going to have lots of questions for these guys, too. But in, in that context, what is the speech that is required of your client that would violate the First Amendment? She believes that same-sex weddings contradict Scripture, and she's announcing a concept of marriage that she believes to be false. And in addition to that— I mean, but that just sounds to me like I would be participating in a wedding, I would be, you know, lending my services to a wedding. You know, as Justice Sotomayor suggested— the florist, the baker, and the guy who provides the chairs are also providing the services in a wedding that they don't like. Um, uh, so why are they any different? The person providing the chairs isn't providing speech. But when you are engaging in symbolic speech, whether that be through the creation of a custom wedding cake or a custom wedding website, you are creating speech. I Even can't... though the site doesn't say anything about that, it doesn't say wow, gay marriage is a wonderful thing. It doesn't say, it doesn't even say, you know, we're here to celebrate this wonderful marriage in my hypothetical. It doesn't even say that. Again, the announcement of the wedding itself is a concept that she believes to be false, and the entire purpose behind the compelled speech doctrine is to avoid these ends by avoiding these beginnings. It's to ensure that individuals don't speak messages that betray their conscience, and that applies just as much to the Democrat as to the LGBT or the black cross sculptor. Thank you. Kristen Wagoner joined me on Tuesday. I listened to a lot of the argument. You were superb. Well, thank you. I, I hope you got the rebuttal where I actually got to say what I think uh, and our plea to the court to provide relief, not just to Lori Smith, but to other artists who are caught in the crosshairs on this issue. Uh, I did. And I want people to understand that when you were standing up there, you were trying to get Colorado to stop interfering with people's speech. It's not a religious liberty case. It's a freedom of speech case. And I thought some of the hypotheticals that came from Justice Brown Jackson just were confusing to me. Did you understand what she was getting at with the baker? Uh, not all the time. Um, I, you know, I think the challenge with the hypotheticals that were being posed is they were extreme situations that would never happen in real life. And the hypotheticals kept changing before the answers could come out. Um, and there was an attempt to try to malign people of faith who believe marriage is between a man and a woman and suggest that this case is about other things, which is just not true. No, I, I did hear Justice Gorsuch rebuke your friendly co-counsel, not co-counsel, opposite counsel from Colorado by misstating what had happened to uh, Jack Phillips in the masterpiece. He was forced to go to re-education camp. Uh, that's a, a gloss on what they call it. But what did you make of that exchange? I think he lost Justice Gorsuch at that moment. I do, too. We intentionally reminded the court about the re-education and the reports and the fines um, in the introduction. And we know that Justice Gorsuch raised concerns about that in Jack's case as well. 
Um, it's wrong that people are facing fines, re-education, and jail time because they won't speak a message that they believe isn't true. They know you've got a slam dunk win, so they're going to try and get people to think this is about uh, racially mixed marriages or something else. I mean, I was truly flabbergasted by the hypotheticals. Well, am I just not studious enough? You should be. Um, it, it's all they have to throw at it. And frankly, it's illegal to turn people away to decline to provide service based on a protected class. That's the same today. It will be the same when the court rules. It is illegal to do that. This is about whether you can decide based on the message. As Justice Gorsuch said in the argument, it's about what the message is, not who's requesting it. And that protection extends to all of us, the LGBT website designer who doesn't want to have to create a message that violates her convictions, or the black sculptor who doesn't want to have to design for the Aryan church. We should all have that freedom. Colorado would take that freedom away from America. Now, is there a real threat to people who are deeply sincere in their religious beliefs. What's the threat to Lori Smith if she's obliged to do websites for same-sex marriages? Lori is creating custom artwork. These are original websites using her words, her text, her graphics to tell a couple's story, to announce an upcoming wedding, and to celebrate that wedding. The consequences are that if she decides to try to promote her faith view of marriage, she has to promote a different view of marriage. And the court has said time and again that it can't, the government can't compel us, intrude on our mind and spirit, to betray our convictions. That's what you see in a totalitarian or authoritarian regime. That's what other countries do that want to repress freedom and move into authoritarianism. And I think the government will respond, I think the court will respond to that. But I would also say, Hugh, that it's important to realize there are cases right now that are at the Court of Appeals where photographers are facing jail time and six-figure penalties for declining to do the same thing that Lori's asking the freedom to do. And obviously, Colorado's the most aggressive enforcer in the nation. We'll be watching this case. We'll be reporting on it when we get a decision next year. I feel pretty confident, given the current composition of the court, that 303 and the First Amendment will triumph. I think it's a matter of whether we get a 6-3 majority or even perhaps a 7-2 majority, with at least a concurring opinion from Justice Kagan. It all underscores how very important this court has been. And not only in the arena of First Amendment liberties. The 6-3 win for West Virginia in the case West Virginia versus EPA, decided in June of this year, is another decision of enormous importance. I spoke with perhaps the key force behind West Virginia's victory, their Attorney General, Patrick Morrissey. This is the most important freedom case in the last three. I think Dobbs was big. Dobbs was huge for saving life. But for saving freedom of people who are already alive, West Virginia versus uh, EPA is it. Would you explain to people what that was about? But what this really, this case was really about at its essence was in our country, you have a question. Who gets to decide the major questions of the day? Should it be unelected bureaucrats or should it be the people's representatives in Congress? And I think that the court was very clear that when you have matters of vast economic and political significance, it's, of course, critical for the Congress to make the decisions as to how it's going to proceed and not leave this to the unelected bureaucrats who reach down into their bag of tricks, pull out twisted, ambiguous phrase and say, we're going to reorder the nation's power grid. I think that this has the opportunity 
to be a game changer because it took on the swamp in a way that no one has in a long time. And it said, no, you're not going to get the deference that we're used to giving you under the law, going back to the Chevron deference from 1984. You're not going to get that anymore because we're going to ensure that the core of the Constitution takes precedence. There will be no constitutional shortcuts for the bureaucrats anymore. And by removing that deference, that makes a big difference for freedom and it forced people to go through the right process. The administrative state is going to bleed out because of the lawsuit you brought, West Virginia versus EPA. You know what? The other point I would make is that when we were going through the process, a lot of people criticized us. Now, the case law begins to populate through the Court of Appeals, through the district courts. And when you get a new administration, you could take this major questions doctrine and the reduction of power of the bureaucracy. You can embed it in agency rules, and the next president has a chance to really, truly go after the swamp using the weapon of West Virginia v. EPA, which, by the way, is a value-neutral decision that doesn't favor Republicans or Democrats because it adheres to the rule of law. Coming up, Elon Musk gives us a window into the Twitter file. If the government pressures private actors to do things that the government itself would not be allowed to do, then that's a big legal problem. When the Town Hall Review returns in a moment. Celebrating our 25th anniversary, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy invites you to learn from one of our beloved teachers, Dr. Gordon Lloyd, in a four-part webinar series titled The Roots of Political Economy, Capitalism versus Socialism. This free video series teaches foundational principles of free markets, as well as the philosophers behind socialism. Find out more at go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. That's go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. It was October 14 of 2020, just a few weeks before the presidential election, when the New York Post published a piece on Hunter Biden in a smoking gun set of emails that had surfaced. Twitter promptly blocked the New York Post account on their site. Any other account that tried to carry the story found itself blocked as well. And from the left came 50 former intelligence officials saying the story had all the earmarks of a classic Russian disinformation operation wrong. Elon Musk, the new owner of Twitter, released some internal documents late last week. Andrew McCarthy explains for us in his conversation with Joe Piscopo on AM 970 The Answer in New York City. Was anything illegal done there? I mean, was there any, like, uh, uh, a concerted effort with the Department of Justice, with social media? Do we know any of that, Andy? I think, Joe, that what people need to realize is that uh, there's a lot of... uh, there's a lot of room for people, you know, looseness in the joints for people to do things that are shady, but not necessarily illegal, number one. Hmm. And number two, on both sides of these exchanges of information, you have very sophisticated actors. Uh, like, for example, the, the, one of the main lawyers at Twitter who was involved in the communications with the FBI was the FBI's former general counsel, Jim Baker during the whole Russiagate stuff, right? So if the Bureau wants to communicate a message and they come in and they say, you know, social media platforms need to be held accountable if they're uh, helping to transmit misinformation, and we have reason to believe, you know how the Russians 
interfered with the election in 2016 in order to help Trump get elected. And we have reason to believe that they were doing the same thing in 2020. And in the weeks before the election, there could be a big news dump uh, along the lines of uh, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, you really have to be on the lookout, you know, for hack wow. Russian misinformation. Wow. Right? And yeah. then let's say there's a dispute about this, which I think is a red herring. But let's say they never say the words Hunter Biden. But they, you know, they give you yeah. if there's 10 facts, they give you yeah. eight of them. Yeah. And then yeah. the people they're talking to on the other side, including the former FBI general counsel, who is a, you know, he, he knows how this game is played. Right. So it's like it's like if I said to you, you know, Joe, I think uh, uh, John has a problem. You know, I get these crazy texts from at, at two o'clock in the morning. There's all kinds of misspellings. Yeah. Um, you know, there, it's a rant. And then I see him the next day. He looks a little disheveled, doesn't look yeah. like he can keep it together. And then you go out and say, you know, Andy told me that John has a drinking problem. Yeah, and yeah. they come to me. I said, I never said it. I never said it. I never said the words. I never did. I, wow. I never went there. Wow. Um, but, but, you know, I, I said enough to you to convey the idea. You you made a sensible deduction from what I said. But I have deniability. I can tell everyone I never said such a thing. Um, and that's how they do it. That's scary. And, and in your article, stop looking for a smoking gun. That's not how this game works. So there's not going to be. Well, they would a, love you. They yeah. would love you to think that, that that guilt or innocence hinges on whether they said the guy's name or not. But you, we all know that's not the way life works. Yeah, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. the one thing you, you always say to a jury in a trial is the one thing you want to never check at the door is your common sense. You know, uh, and the way the world works is. You know, they don't you're not going to find a piece of paper where the FBI says, let's tell them that there might be derogatory information about Hunter Biden that we know is not really derogatory because we've had the laptop for over a year and we know exactly what's on it. You're not going to find anything like that. But what you see is that there are people on both sides of these discussions who know exactly what's going on. Look at those 51 uh, national security agents who signed the letter, right? Around yes. the same time. Yes, yes. The one that said the letter, the letter that says, um, you know, it has all the earmarks of Russian disinformation. Right, if you right. talk to Brennan or Clapper or any of the, any of the uh, uh, fellas who signed off on this letter, they tell you, well, we never said it was Russian disinformation. Uh, we never made that claim. We said it had all the earmarks. Wow. It, and that yeah. we were very concerned about it. And this is the kind of thing the Russians do. Uh, yeah. And they knew exactly what they were doing. They put it out there. They floated it out there so that they could deny they ever said it. But in the meantime, you know, Biden leaped on it to say these intelligence officials who are bipartisan and patriotic say it's Russian disinformation. And yeah. Twitter and Facebook use that letter to, as as to fortify their conclusion that they should suppress the story. That's how they do it. To get to the heart of the matter, nothing illegal. This is the way the game is played is what you're saying, and you're going to have to deal with it. And I guess this just goes away, and I hate to quote Hillary, but it's like a nothing burger here, correct? Well, no, I, I think, you know, look, if if the government pressures private actors to do things that the government itself would not be allowed to do, then that's a big legal problem.
Joe Biden, and we talked about it earlier on the program, is just he's parading a hunter around like it's in your face, like like hunters parading around like, go ahead, like taunting us. And one thing, Joe, they, they really ought to do. These intelligence officials should not have security clearances anymore. And there ought to be any action Bravo. that can be taken against them ought to be taken because they had privileged access to the nation's secrets. Brandon Tatum weighed in on his program on the Officer Tatum Show. We caught them red-handed. They cheat. They 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 cheated the system on Twitter to block Republicans and endorse liberals, uh, Democrats. And of course, in the Twitter files, they say Dorsey didn't know, which he was the CEO of Twitter. They said that he didn't know a lot of the stuff. He was trying to put out fires behind the scene, so he wasn't the culprit. He wasn't the bad guy, but it was a whole bunch of other people that were the bad guy. Literally suppressing speech at, at the request of the government. Now, let me tell you this. Social media organizations can suppress whatever they want to suppress. They're, po- they're public companies. I mean, private companies. They're privately owned. They're not owned by the government. The, the, the First Amendment don't count in a private business. You have terms of conditions that you abide by. You said you want to, you prescribe to those terms and conditions. You have to live by those terms and conditions. Now, the government can't suppress your speech because that is a constitutional right. The government cannot suppress your speech. We didn't enter into a contract with the government. The only contract we got with the government is the Constitution. So the problem is, is not if Twitter was suppressing your speech. That's another conversation. That's a class action lawsuit if you want to make one. But when the government is suppressing your speech, that's illegal. Now, I got to figure out which charge that to be, but that's illegal for them to do that. For them to coerce or, 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 or to uh, coerce an organization that's a public, a private entity to act on their behalf to suppress a person's freedom of speech and to manipulate or collude with a company in order to t- change the outcome of an election. Those got to be crimes. Now, I don't know which crimes they are because I hadn't looked it up, but that, that, it seemed like a crime to me. Coming up, Understanding America. Public opinion can be set by a minority in such a way that people believe it's a majority. Yeah. A look at Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville when the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt returns in a moment. Stay with us. And we want to thank our friends at Epic TV for sponsoring the show. Epic TV is a censorship-free video platform with original news programs like Crossroads, The Larry Elder Show, Facts Matter, American Thought Leaders, and documentaries investigating critical issues that are not covered anywhere else. Why do we trust the Epic Times? They're unbiased. They report important news that other media ignore. They focus on clear, fact-based journalism without spin or hidden agendas. They are truthful. They report just the facts and trust their discerning viewers, that's all of you beautiful people, to arrive at your own conclusions. They're resilient. Despite the attacks from many sides, defamation from other media, thugs burning of their printing presses and assaulting their journalists, the Epic Times continue to dedicate themselves to reporting the truth. If you're looking for an unbiased, truthful, and resilient news source, check them out daily. We have a special offer for our listeners. Just sign up and start watching. No credit card required. No strings attached. If you decide to subscribe within 14 days, it's just $1 for two months. 
So go to watchepic.com slash townhall and subscribe. That's watchepoch.com slash townhall. Watch unbiased, truthful news and Epic TV on any device. There's a special offer for our viewers. Just sign up and start watching. No credit card required. No strings attached. If you decide to subscribe within 14 days, it's just $1 for two months. So go to watchepic.com slash townhall and subscribe. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt, brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Democracy in America is at once the best book ever written on democracy and the best book ever written about America. It is the country in which democracy is least hindered, most perfected, where democracy is at its most characteristic and its best. Those words came from the great Harvey Mansfield, the Harvard professor. In his introduction to the classic work by Alexis de Tocqueville on our great republic, a work first published in two volumes in 1835 and then in 1840. Given the highly polarized, tense political times we are living through, it's a good time to gain appreciation for this project. Yes, also for the nation we love. Pete Peterson of Pepperdine's Graduate School of Public Policy joined Seth Leibson on AM 960 The Patriot in Phoenix. Democracy in America, Alexis de Tocqueville's two volumes. Boy, good, important, still around. Tell us about the import of Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. Well, I think knowing a bit about the background is is important. Yes. Uh, this, this was a book, as you say, written in two sections, of volume one and volume two. Uh, but wherever uh, books are sold, you get them together. But it, it was essentially, it began as a travelogue by the Frenchman, the French aristocrat, Alexis de Tocqueville, who came to the United States from France in 1831, ostensibly to write about what this growing republic was like, and also in particular to study the prison and penitentiary Sorry. systems here in the United States. Yeah. What began with that purpose turned into really magisterial book about American exceptionalism. What makes America unique, not only in the structure of its government, uh, the importance of federalism and subsidiarity, but also in what Tocqueville would call our mores. What, what are the, the habits of the heart, another phrase that he uses, that Americans essentially have – as democratic citizens that enables them to handle this previously unknown level of freedom. Mm -hmm. Those freedoms, uh, freedom of religion, freedom of association, freedom of speech. He, if I, if I remember correctly, he goes into those as perhaps the greatest bulwarks against another phrase that we can help attribute to him, maybe Madison and him more than anything else, which is tyranny of the majority, right? These are the bulwarks to protect us from the tyranny of the majority. Yes, a democracy governs by majorities, but majorities can be tyrannous, right? No, that's right. And, of course, this is one of the areas as we begin to talk about the importance of of free speech that at once Tocqueville gets absolutely right. But I think he also, in ways that he couldn't have foreseen, misses a bit. Tocqueville is very upfront about the fact that public opinion in a democracy is a powerful instrument for controlling broader public opinion on a variety of policy, political, or cultural issues. And he sees this through the lens of the broader democratic 
instincts of Americans, which is to trust a majority of opinion on things. So he talks a lot about the fact that Americans will hold up the majority view on an issue, whether it's a an election or an issue, as being almost the voice of God, mm-hmm. that they just necessarily trust that. Mm-hmm. I think what he misses is that there can be a tyranny of the minority as it pertains to public opinion, yeah. which is something that certainly that we're seeing now. So in one sense, Tocqueville gets absolutely right the power of public opinion, that it at one point he says that nothing, once it's set in the American mind, a position on a particular issue, nothing stands in, in its way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But what he doesn't, I don't think, get, and again, allowable given all the other things he he does get this right. This is still early America, let us not forget, right? This is That's right. 40-year-old America or something like that. That's it. That's it. Um, is the fact that here, what we're, I believe we're seeing today on a whole host of issues, and this certainly gets to the topic of cancel culture, mm-hmm. is that public opinion can be set by a minority in such a way that people believe it's a majority, yeah. but it nonetheless controls public opinion and what's permissible to say across a whole host of issues. Once in a while, maybe almost once every century, a great foreigner casts his eye and study to America and explains us to ourselves in a way better than we do ourselves. I, I don't know if you No, agree I with think that. that's I totally agree with that. And writing to a French audience that obviously had been convulsed by one revolution after another after the initial French Revolution um, he is saying this democracy is coming to the world, mm-hmm. and these are the things that you need to know about. But what makes the book really so important for Americans today to read is the second half, the second book of the two-book volume in which he gets into a series of what I call Tocqueville's prophecies about things that people living in democratic republics need to worry about yeah. as they look to the future. Coming up. Tocqueville marveled at Americans' ability to govern themselves, yeah. particularly at the local level. Yeah. More on Democracy in America when the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt returns in a moment. Celebrating our 25th anniversary, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy invites you to learn from one of our beloved teachers, Dr. Gordon Lloyd, in a four-part webinar series titled The Roots of Political Economy, Capitalism versus Socialism. This free video series teaches foundational principles of free markets, as well as the philosophers behind socialism. Find out more at go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. That's go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. It was 1788 when our fledging nation ratified the Constitution. The Constitution itself and the nation itself is a marvel of democracy and self-governance. There's something unique that de Tocqueville recognized in his trips there in the 19th century. And it's a uniqueness that marks us even today. Let's pick up on Seth Leibson's conversation with Pete Peterson, talking about democracy in America. I remember off the top of my head, I mean, I put it in speeches on this topic when I speak on on, on the judiciary. He warned about um, how unfortunate it was that there's nary a political question that arises in America that doesn't become a judicial one. Uh, I, I'm pretty close to a quote. It's not exactly direct, but that's pretty close to something he wrote in there, isn't it? 
That's right. No, the um, the the thing that really comes across is just how much Tocqueville marveled at Americans' ability to govern themselves, yeah. particularly at the local level. Yeah. And you think back at the time in the 1830s, the federal government was not really even a – I mean, it was an entity, but as far as its taxing powers and regulatory powers, it wasn't anywhere – close to what it is now. It was really the states that were the dominant, say, suprastructure over the local governments and certainly the move towards or the looking into the future and seeing lawyers and the judiciary and others getting more involved in policymaking, removing the representative nature of uh, our democratic republic were one of several cautions that Tocqueville makes. Yeah. And a lot of the stuff you and I have talked about over the last, uh, I don't know, how long have we known each other? A couple of years anyway, maybe. Um, yeah. A lot of the stuff we talk about, you know, he addresses as well. Let's start with the one that most people identify with democracy in America, which is gets us even to a passion of yours. And, and this is this issue of voluntary associations as kind of yeah. the secret ingredient to what makes yep. us so great. Pete, a lot of people who don't know a lot about democracy in America or a lot about Tocqueville, if they have a faint memory of it, perhaps from a civics course in high school or something like that, they remember this this pregnant phrase, voluntary associations. This was yeah. something that uh, de Tocqueville thought was one of the secret sauces to our existence. You want to say a few words about that? I quote this phrase directly from democracy in America about that in this Prager U video, at one point, Tocqueville is just cannot believe how many voluntary associations are taking over jobs, tasks, and responsibilities that back on the European continent were handled either by uh, governments or other types of officials. And at one point, he says, at the start of a great undertaking, where you'll find the government official in France, the lord of the manor in England, count on it. In America, you'll find an association. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this willing, this associativeness that another word that Tocqueville uses that was required, if we think about it, in an America at this time, you know, only 50 years old, there weren't really major government institutions, even at the local level, to do things like build schools, roads, even bridges, You know, many of the things that even today Americans believe are more government responsibilities, back at that time, it was groups of Americans working together in kind of this nationwide series of barn raisings, if you will, Mm. that were going on throughout the country. And as Tocqueville would say, this was really because there were no other options. There wasn't a government to lean on Mm. that had the sufficient capacity to undertake these things, but across a variety of social services, if you call that, around poverty and certainly children that needed to be adopted, those kinds of things, it was really left to Americans working through a vibrant nonprofit sector that was responding to these things. And as long as we're now talking about that, that opens the door to Pete to really a set of beautiful things he says about the importance of religion in America, the church in America, right? 
That's right. You know, he says this other phrase that in America, religion is the foremost of their political institution. Yeah. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Yeah, that's the one. It is. And of course, what what Tocqueville means by that is not necessarily that there's some blending of church and state, but that religion in America, as opposed to, again, he's always comparing back to his European experience. What religion in America, as it's practiced, was really formative in preparing people for political leadership, uh, certainly through the wide range of Protestant churches. They were generally led by parishioners, so people kind of got a training in that. But there was also this aspect of religion, particularly Christianity, that formed citizens that were able to regulate themselves. That's right. That's right. That's my memory of it, is he talks about how it's what tempers or... If that's not if that's too pejorative, that's right. it's it, it it's what makes our 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 delight in our life in freedom work, right? Religion is what makes freedom work without becoming assaultive of others, right? That's right, and I think temper is the right word, okay. right? I mean, we okay. we we know that it when provided with this unimaginable freedom and opportunity that was present in America, you know, the Europeans would say, well, they're just going to go crazy and care only for themselves and disconnect from all things and just be kind of that devil take the hindmost kind of attitude. Mm -hmm. And really, it was religion that helped form these, again, this phrase, habits of the heart for Americans that enabled them to control these very, what could be selfish impulses and turn them much more into a community-focused interest in doing either working through their church or through certainly faith-based nonprofits to engage in the needs and respond to the needs of their communities. That's right. So I kind of think of it as, uh, you know, the phrase, almost everyone knows the phrase, probably in this audience anyway, from John Adams, that our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people and is, what, wholly inadequate to anything else or to a government of any other. And that's that issue that I think Tocqueville is seizing on. I don't think he knows that quote or uses it, but that is the sense, isn't it, that you can't have – you can't have freedom, and we'll get to equality in a moment as well, because he opens the yep. book there, I think. But you can't have it without a moral basis. That's that's the point. That's absolutely right. 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 Yeah, yeah, that's right. Coming up, speaking of the Tocqueville. He said, Americans have combated this selfishness that we thought would be natural in a place of such great freedom. In the final segment of the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Stay with it. Hi, I'm Don Crow. This week in the Christian Outlook, sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy, the Supreme Court hears the biggest First Amendment case in a generation. What is the speech that is required of your client that would violate the First Amendment? She believes that same-sex weddings contradict Scripture. We'll get analysis on the case. Everyone should be able to speak freely, that no one should ever be punished or coerced by the government to say something that they don't believe is true. We'll also talk about the broad struggle of what's happening in our nation with Pastor Alan Jackson. We took God off the throne, and in too many cases, I think we put the government on the throne. Hmm. And so we're watching our nation plunge into paganism. We have all this and more. Be sure to join us and visit our website at ChristianOutlook.com.
Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. As we've considered the great volume from Alexis de Tocqueville today, Democracy in America, I hope it has renewed and rekindled your own desire to do your part as we continue in this, the greatest experiment in democratic self-governance the world has ever seen. Let's catch a few more minutes of Seth Liebson with our friend Pete Peterson of Pepperdine's Graduate School of Public Policy. Pete, one of the quotes I do have, of it, I kind of keep a quote book. I don't know if you do. I call it a commonplace book. And Very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And in Democracy in America, one of those is it cannot be absolutely or generally affirmed that the greatest danger of the present age is license or tyranny, anarchy or despotism. Both are equally to be feared. And the one may be as easily to proceed as the other from the self-same cause, namely apathy. Apathy, yeah. which is the consequence of what I term individualism. You know, the idea that we are not involved, the idea that we do take this stuff for granted, the idea that Ronald Reagan yep. was concerned about, right? The idea yep. that all these yep. um, all these George Orwell uh, intonations, you know, worry. This is how societies lose themselves. They forget they forget what they're about, right? That's so true. Of course, if, if Tocqueville is going to describe the reason by which Americans are able to maintain limited government, which is significant, massive nationwide civic engagement, then apathy is the is the cancer that eats away at that. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I I mentioned the phrase that Dennis Prager always uses, you know, the bigger the government, the smaller the citizen yep. and the yep smaller the citizen, the bigger the government. Yeah. And that is essentially democracy in America in a single phrase. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, again, he Tocqueville is just overwhelmed by the fact that Americans are essentially taking care of their own business. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're not doing it individually. They're doing it within communities. And it's a, a concept very famous in the book. Uh, known as self-interest rightly understood. And in that section of the book, Tocqueville writes that so many of us in Europe hearing about the freedoms that are afforded to Americans just thought that everybody would become selfish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But as he looks and sees both their religious devotion, their civic participation, he said Americans have combated this selfishness that we thought would be natural in a place of such great freedom with what he calls self-interest rightly understood. They've, they've learned how to practice their freedoms in such a way that still maintain our freedom, but at the same time understand that we need to be working with others in community as well. Thank you for joining us for the Town Hall Review with you, Hewitt. Catch up on earlier episodes at our website, townhallreview.com, and sign up for a daily dose of the best in talk radio. Special thanks to executive producer Russell Schubert and to producers David Pouchon, Michael Cook, Tim Gantner, Adam Ramsey, Jacob Ordunia, and Dwayne Patterson. Let me say thanks once again to our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Hugh Hewitt, and thank you for joining us.
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.